It's been a decade since The Guardian Australia opened its doors. Using a loan from philanthropist Graham Wood, launch editor Catherine Viner assembled a team of some of the country's best journalists, many of whom were refugees from Fairfax Media. This coming weekend marks the 10-year anniversary. Today's guests are The Guardian Australia's current editor, Lenore Taylor, and outgoing managing director, Dan Stinton. Lenore, I'll start with you. What would you be doing now if not for The Guardian? That is really hard to say. When The Guardian launched 10 years ago, I was chief political correspondent for Fairfax and I was pretty happy in my job. I wasn't desperately unhappy at all. I was a little dissatisfied with their digital strategy, but mostly I was attracted to the idea of setting up a new voice in Australian journalism. Okay, if that hadn't come along, would I still be at Fairfax? Maybe I was vaguely entertaining the idea at the time of looking to set up an Australian version of something like Politico. I'm very glad, knowing what I know now, that I didn't try to do that. So maybe I would be a failed um, website startup person. I don't know. Which I suppose when we look back at how different things are to how they were in 2013, you know, we were at that point, we were just a few months on from that huge round of redundancies of both Fairfax and at News Corp. It was a pretty scary time to be starting something. Well, both a scary time to be starting something and the perfect time to be starting something. So, yeah, it was a terrifying time. I mean, it was the time when Gina Reinhart was trying to get control of the Fairfax board. It was a time when there was massive cost-cutting and redundancies where the real impact of the digital platforms was starting to be felt. So, you know, we'd always been banging on about how few um, media voices there were in Australia and then those voices were getting sort of hollowed out from the inside. So it seemed imperative at the time to start something new and make it succeed. But, yeah, it was scary. And, you know, I mean, I always dine out on the story that Greg Highwood said that there were only going to be ever two brands that would make any impact in Australia and that was Fairfax and News Corp. But the truth was at the time we were really conscious that he might be right. Like, it was a really big risk. And do you think it could have been done without the power and the heritage of the Guardian brand? You know, this this venerable British newspaper that had already made that transformation to the digital world. Could it have done it on its own? So that's why I said what I said about my kind of slightly mad plan of setting up a Politico-type organisation in Australia. I think what I didn't appreciate was, um, A, I mean, we have all the news from the global operations of The Guardian, but also all of that back office, the developers, the just the processes, the marketing, the, like all of the back op- off operation of The Guardian gave us a sort of foundation to build on. And then we could add the Australian news operation on top of that. And I don't think I actually appreciated how big that was, how big a task that was, or how very difficult that would have been to start from scratch. So I think the answer is maybe you could do it without um, the heft of a global news organisation, but it would be really hard to get to scale as quickly as we have. Well, Dan, let me bring you in to talk about the the commercial or the business side of things, because it's a complicated model. What actually pays for the journalism? 
Well, lots of things, I guess, is the short answer. Um, but, I mean, this is not a very sexy answer, Tim, but, you know, we've got a diversified revenue model. And I think to be a successful publisher, you, you need to have a diversified revenue model. Um, so, I mean, we have three main revenue streams, uh, one being what we broadly call reader revenue. That's a combination of subscriptions and people making voluntary contributions to us. We're refining that model at the moment. That's about um, the split between advertising and reader revenue is about 55% reader revenue, about 45% advertising. Um, that's been a rocket ship for us. Um, it's like all publishers, it's getting harder to keep growing, uh, especially as we come out of COVID, um, the post-Trump years, although we might, we might go and be going through those again. Um, but, you know, I think every publisher around the world is, is having to fine-tune their model now to keep that growing, but it's still a really successful model for us. Advertising is actually growing faster uh, for us. Digital advertising exclusively is going faster for us than reader revenue uh, now. Um, we think there's lots of growth to come from that. We've got a model which is kind of a bit old-fashioned in a way. We've gone back to direct selling, moving away from third parties selling our, our, our content, uh, sorry, selling our inventory. And then we've got licensing revenue. Um, that existed before the News Media Bargaining Code, by the way, but obviously that was helped by the News Media Bargaining Code. Um, and those three streams... Uh, all, all delivering, um, all paying for the journalism, I guess. And a little bit of philanthropy. Yeah. yeah. You know, we were started with a philanthropic loan from Graham Wood, which we then paid back when we became profitable five five years ago right now. Um, but along the way, we've taken uh, editorially independent philanthropic grants to specific projects, which is really just a way of growing a bit faster than we could under our own steam. It's never going to be a huge revenue source. It's only very small, but it has been important to us getting big enough, quick enough. And something you mentioned, Graham Wood, who obviously at the time had also supported the Global Mail as well, and it was almost a sort of a, a change of horses. And I think something we didn't realise from the outside world at the time, but then emerged when uh, Malcolm Turnbull published his uh, autobiography. Well, actually, was... it emerged when Alan Rusbridger published his, but nobody read it closely enough. <laughs> Look, I, that's a very fair point because I have both on my bookshelf, and I, 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 I didn't twig. But um, is it, is it fair to say that it wouldn't have happened without? Malcolm generating that conversation, do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's true. So um, I think Malcolm had the idea of, well, he had a conversation because he was shadow communications minister at the time. He had a conversation with Alan. He he came up with the idea or suggested the idea of why not have an Australian um, operation for The Guardian. I think Alan at the time thought, you know, well, we, we can't finance that. Um, Malcolm said, what about philanthropic funding and introduced... Um, Alan and Graham Wood to one another. I think at that point sort of Malcolm exited stage left and they worked it out together. And, you know, Graham really was the most brilliant of funders because he understood editorial independence and he really, as I think Catherine Viner said, gave us the money and cleared off, you know. I mean, and we are incredibly grateful to him and I think surprised him incredibly when we paid him back. <laughs> and um, Dan, as you mentioned, about five years ago, moved to beyond break even. What is your remit now? Is it to deliver a profit and a return back to London or is it to spend every dollar you make? Um, oh, it, it's the Guardian globally, as I think you and obviously your listeners will know, is owned by the Scott Trust. So, you know, all of our profits effectively go back into journalism. Um, that's largely true in Australia too. So, you know, we as we have grown, um, our revenue has um, I, I almost tripled, I think, in the last three years. Uh, our profits have stayed pretty much just above break-even uh, throughout that period. Um, and that's because we we basically we do what The Guardian is, you know, um, supposed to do. We, we reinvest all the profits back into growing the team. And Lenore, if you 
had more resource, how would you spend it? Oh, my, so many ways. Um, Look, there's different ways that we could expand. Um, I would like to do more podcasting. I would like to have a broader geographic spread. So we've started um, in our last expansion, we started state containers and we have a very small operation, a state-based operation in Queensland and then state reporters in both New South Wales and Victoria. I'd really like to expand that out to other states because I think that Um, there are Guardian readers in those other states who still want the basics of their state news. So I'd like to do more of that. I'd like to have a bigger investigative team. I'd like to do more video. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of things I'd like to do. Now, Dan, we just touched on podcasts there. Um, They're really hard to actually monetize, aren't they? So I can understand the editorial argument for doing them. I, I was doing my homework and just listening to the latest episode of The Whole Story, for instance, I didn't even hear an ad before it. Um, should have. Yeah. Should have. <laughs> okay, well, I, well, I didn't. This, well, my answer might surprise you then, Tim. Podcasting is hugely successful for us. Um, uh, I am conscious we're not in the podcast ranker yet. We will be soon, by the way. We're working that out at the moment. Um, but Full Story in particular has been a massive success for us. It's profitable now. Um, pretty much all of the inventory is sold out across it. So if you didn't hear an ad a while ago, that's probably more of a technical issue than anything else um, and probably something I'll follow up with after this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, podcasting for us, um, the economics of it stack up really well. You can make really high-quality um, uh, journalism with that and you can and we basically are selling it out at almost 100%. Um, it's a bit harder with video where it's much more expensive to make that level of quality um, and therefore much more difficult to monetize uh, or at least to, to break even on. But for podcasting, no, I think that um, I think that we will be investing more in it in time. Uh, obviously, that won't be up to me, but I think we will be investing more of it in time. And I think that the, the prospects for us in the audio space are really, really strong. Let me build on that a bit, Lenore. What, what would you see as the, the podcasting opportunities? Well, um, I've given the podcasting team a very clear um, objective, which is to become the number one narrative news podcast with full story. And then because I think the lesson we've learned internationally is that you need your big spine podcast, your hero podcast. And then you could do other sort of subject specific or other types of podcasts off the back of that. We're also going to do sort of um, hero series that we put out in the full story feed about a specific topic um so yeah there's lots of lots of things that you can do with podcasting now just before we come off the business model something i remember thinking about oh five or six years ago when um kath viner was talking event i think maybe even alan rusbridger was talking so i'm not, not sure i have my timings right but i remember seeing them speak at a couple of different events in different places of the world within a couple of days of each other and both of them used the same phrase about paywalls never say never um, that drumbeat has gone a bit quiet since. So I'm wondering if we can now actually say never. Uh, look, I think where one of our core principles is that we want our journalism to be open and available to all, including those that can't necessarily afford it, right? And I think the model that we have launched and developed over the last, I think, eight years or seven years or thereabouts has proven to be hugely successful. Um, so I don't see any reason why we would change it. I mean, that said, we do do uh, some things on the margins, for example. So we, we do have a paid subscription app. Uh, there's a paywall on that, I guess. Um, but, you know, the, the, the idea of our journalism being available and free on the web, I think, is something which is um, very unlikely to change. And Lenore, um, it, it strikes me that there is something special in the reader connection to the Guardian brand that makes reader contributions 
workable for The Guardian that wouldn't necessarily be the case for many other news brands. What is it? Um, I think that what we offer in Australia is distinct. So, I mean, I'm getting a lot of messages right now because it's our 10th birthday and I'm hearing from people. And the most common thing I hear is, thank God you're here, thank God you came. Like people have a sort of an emotional response because we're fulfilling a news need that they had that wasn't fulfilled before we were here. Um, I think we also put the reader more at the centre of what we do. So, uh, we have moderated comments. We um, do a lot of reader call-outs and bring readers into the journalism. I think we're more, probably more motivated by by the need to listen to and hear from our readers. I think also the way that we approach reporting. So I kind of like to put it that we are more often reporting about the people upon whom power is exercised rather than the people who exercise the power. You know, if you take our welfare reporting, um, we did a series called Life on the Breadline where we heard from people on unemployment benefits. And I remember when we commissioned that and I thought, look, this is an important thing to do, but it's not going to get very well read. It was every time blockbuster runaway hit in with readers people read it all they read it to the end they wanted to hear those stories and i think cassandra goldie the head of acos has said that it helped that type of reporting and the type of reporting that we've done has helped flip the narrative of the welfare debate from the doll bludger external people talking about people in that situation to actually understanding the perspective of people in that situation so i guess that that ethos of looking at the world through the eyes of our readers probably makes them like us. Let's um, talk a bit about some of those voices that you've helped surface. Um, you know, there's some quite sort of distinct voices, you know, writing for The Guardian who didn't necessarily have a media career before. Who are you proudest of having surfaced? Look, we've surfaced a lot of people. Um, we ran Indigenous X for a long time, and I think that was a really important initiative because it broadened the number of Indigenous voices that were being heard from a few that would appear in the big paper op-ed pages to many, many more. And I think that was a really important thing to do. Um, I think we were very reliant on contributors at the beginning because we didn't have very many staff, to be perfectly frank. And so people like Van Battam and Greg Jericho um, have been part of The Guardian, you know, uh, from the beginning. First Dog has been part of The Guardian from the beginning. Um, now, do you know, I'm going to challenge you on First Dog because if, if I, uh, you know, and hey, look, cards on the table, I, you know, grew up in a Guardian reading household, so it's been a part of my media history for uh, nearly half a century, I suppose. Um, but I always felt that was the one thing, because first of all, brilliant cartoonist, but it was so distinctively a part of Crikey. Mm. And that just felt like one independent media outlet, a little bit dog-eat-dog, dog, I suppose. To coin a phrase. Um, so so, well, yeah, he came from Crikey. I mean, we've sourced staff and contributors from all over and I don't think we've actually hired anybody else from Crikey. I might be wrong. So, um, yeah, but I mean, that is where he came from. But, I mean, he's really, uh, he does international cartoons that go really well in London as well. You know, Kath really likes it when he does um, global topics. So 
I would argue that he's kind of part of the Guardian furniture now. You know, like where would we be without Ian the climate denialist potato, hey? <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that, that that's a really fair point. Um, and going back to Van Baden, Greg Jericho, why do you think people like that weren't coming through in the mainstream media before? I mean, we run our opinion pages a bit differently from others, right? Like other other papers will go for the heads of peak organisations and politicians making political points. We don't run very many op-eds from politicians. It's only if they're saying something that they really would never say in a press release that we might consider running them or something quite different. Um, so I think we were more on the lookout for not the usual suspects. And how would you describe the newsroom culture here in Australia? And I, and is it is it the same as the Guardian in the UK, for instance? Does it share DNA, or is it uniquely Australian? Definitely shares DNA. It's going to sound soppy, but honestly, honestly, it's different from any other newsroom that I've worked in, and I've worked in most of the major newsrooms. It is truly collegiate. It is, we do live our values, you know, like the worst thing you can do in the Guardian newsroom is raise your voice or be rude to someone. We just don't, we don't do that. Um, Is it the same as the UK? Uh, More or less, you know, I think that was one of the things that Kath was really grappling with at the beginning is how to import the Guardian culture, but then make it Australian. Um, We don't have, I think we have almost no UK staff in Australia left. It's all Australian staff now, almost all. Um, And I guess being smaller and far away means that we can just kind of get on and do things without having a committee and, you know, like we we can be a bit more nimble, but the essential values are the same as they were in the UK, I think. I, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a big cultural difference, no. And something which I I found myself sort of I guess viewing from a distance and seeing from the UK and feeling a bit kind of sad to see it unfolding was the the UK newsroom being divided over transgender politics. Um I haven't detected that in Australia at all. Have you have you had any big issues where you found the staff actually on different sides of the same debate in a way that has got to raised voices or whatever. I mean, that issue hasn't uh, come to the fore in our newsroom in the way that it has in the UK. And I guess also in society here, it hasn't been a left versus left debate here as much as it has in the UK. But no, there hasn't been as big an issue for us here. I mean, the staff have input on issues and input that I welcome. So, you know, there's a, a quite active committee on um, cultural and linguistic diversity, and that's actually been helpful in a discussion of setting targets. And, you know, we, I mean, there was always a desire, intent, goal by Dan and me to have a more diverse workforce, but having input from the staff about how we might go about that has actually been a good thing. And Dan, do you want to talk to that a little bit, the, 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 the workforce diversity side of things? Oh, I mean, look, it's been obviously a core focus for us. And I think um, one of the benefits of expanding so quickly as we have over the last couple of years has been that it's given us the opportunity to bring in a whole bunch of people which are culturally diverse um, and of diverse backgrounds. So 
we, um, as Lenore mentioned, with the, with the help of our CAL group, we implemented some targets uh, which we are pretty close to achieving. Um, not quite there, but... Um, and, you know, I think the organisation is stronger for it um, and we have more diverse opinions on both the editorial and the commercial side of the business. So um, all I would say is, look, I, I don't think this job will ever finish, um, but the benefit that I have seen in the organisation with a whole bunch of um, diverse backgrounds coming into the organisation has definitely made us stronger, both, I think, journalistically and also commercially. And Lenore, I, you know, I, I guess it's inarguable now that the the Guardian is a firm fixture of the media establishment here in Australia. If you could change anything about the wider media culture, what would it be? If I could change the wider media culture, like you making me god of the media, yes, just for just for today. Oh right! Wow, I've never actually thought of that. It thinks from that perspective, or you know, what what annoys you about the wider media Look, culture? I think it's fine for media organisations to hold one another accountable. I think that is part of our role, and that's good. I think that there are some media organisations in Australia that take that to you know, pretty extreme levels on pretty tiny uh, points. and You're being polite, but you mean news call. I do. And that um, I guess what I worry is that taken to the nth degree, what that does is, um, is exacerbate polarisation and undermine trust in the media in general. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be scrutinised. Of course we should. I'm not saying we'll stop scrutinising other people. Of course we will. But that sort of personalised, you know, continual kind of um, undermining, if you like, I think is is bad. I mean, I would also, I, I if I could sort of rewrite every script, I would hope that every media organisation, whatever their perspective, whatever they did, would stand up for... Um, for for truth as the guardrails of civic debate. And that's not always the case either. You know, there's been some examples where, you know, I don't think as the media we should ever use the word fake news. If it's fake, it's not news. That should not even, that's a misnomer. We shouldn't even use that phrase. So, yeah, I'd change those things. What is the local relationship with News Corp? Like, I mean, I think of The Guardian had such a pivotal role in the the phone hacking saga in the UK. I don't I don't detect quite the same tensions here. I mean I remember your uh, your predecessor Kath Viner being, you know, kind of papped in the in, in the corridors of 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 Canberra, but I I don't remember anything recently. Have things kind of calmed down between The Guardian and oh, News Corp? I still get locally? an email from the media section every Sunday about something or other. But I mean because of the because of how small the media is, I mean, I've got lots of friends that work at News Corp, you know, people I know very well, people I respect. Um, and, you know, I hope vice versa. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes it, it seems like there's sort of an editorial um, imperative to have a go at us as, when they can. That's fine. You know, that's what they do. But I don't, you know, I think, I mean, I worked at News Corp for more than a decade. So I don't think it's such a big divide. I'd love to know what you both think about the launch of Sire. Obviously, this is going to be one of the big new players. Um, Chris Jans came up through Fairfax and then the, the merged nine Fairfax. Um, 
do you see this? Are you, are you taking it seriously as a competitor? How are you thinking about it at this to be stage? Honest, I don't really know what exactly they're going to be doing. I've seen the launch. I've seen the first appointment or one or two. I'm not sure. I guess having launched ourselves um, on the basis that Australia needed a plurality of media views and that new voices were a good thing, it would be a little bit hypocritical to say, well, we should shut the door after us. That's enough now. So I guess we welcome a new player and we welcome competition. Yeah, I might add to that. I mean, I, I, I would echo that. I think it's a it's a good thing that uh, Chris is trying to do this, uh, and I genuinely hope he is successful. I'm not I'm not viewing it as competitive at all. And you wouldn't want to bet against Chris either, right? He's got a pretty good track record in these things, and he's a pretty good operator. Um, as I understand it, he's building this business um, again with a unsexy diversified revenue, but um, you know, with consumer revenue and subscriptions at the heart of it. The observation I would make is that that is a um, that's a fantastic business when you get to a relatively mature level because it's dependable revenue. It's, it's, you can build a business off the back of that, but it takes a while to get there. So you have, I, I, my suspicion will be it will take a few years to get to a position of profitability. I hope he does. I hope that he adds to uh, the kinds of journalism being done in Australia. Um, you know, I think from what I've seen him saying, he's sort of focusing on that area of, of tech and politics and how that intersects. Um, maybe there's a gap there. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how they go. And Lenore, if, if, if Chris were to ask your advice for what to learn from the Guardian playbook of finding an audience, what advice would you give him? I don't know how to answer that because he's not looking for the same audience, right? I, don't, I really don't quite know. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. And I think wishing him well is one thing. Giving him advice on how to start <laughs> his business is, is potentially another. And I suppose one, one thing I found when I was thinking about Cy was, hey, look, the, one of the things I don't turn to the Guardian for, and that's not to criticise its business journalists, but I wouldn't go first to The Guardian for its well, business coverage. I just coverage. got a business ju- reporter like three months ago, so... Is that maybe a, a gap you've left that Sire are potentially going to jump into now? Uh, look, we couldn't do everything all at once and business journalism is something that we, we've just reported a senior... Bus- we've just appointed a senior business reporter. We had a, a, a predecessor to him, but we've never had a lot of resources there. Yeah, I would like to do more, um, but we haven't quite gotten around to it yet. And, and I'll add to that if I can, Tim. I, I think where this is potentially relevant for your audience is one of the, the approach that The Guardian has taken over the whole 10 years of our life um, is that we have grown slowly, sustainably. We've, we've never gone out and done you know, what BuzzFeed and Vice did, which is basically go and hire a huge number of journalists and start producing a huge amount of content and, and worry about the profits later. That, that was never the Guardian model. And I think that is one of the main reasons why we're still here and hopefully uh, thriving is because we have had to basically go slowly, slowly. Now, the downside of that means that, yeah, we don't have a huge um, business team. There are, there are many other verticals that Lenore and I have talked about going into uh, over the years that we would have liked to. But you have to always go, well, what's, what's going to make the most sense? Firstly, from a journalism point of view, uh, but then secondly, where can we turn a dollar off that vertical? And so we've just had to slowly go um, one, one step at a time. And we do have the benefit of the business and tech reporting from the US and the UK teams, which is substantial. And um, Dan, it's, it's, on the, it's already on the record that you're leaving fairly soon after about five years, um, going to Health Engine, so slightly outside of the media world. Um, what was on your to-do list that you never got to five years on? Um, how long have you got, Tim? Um, look, I, 
you always want to grow faster. Um, we've, we've done pretty well, but I think, um, you know, if you look back, uh, I won't go into all the gory details, but I think we probably could have grown and gained a bigger share in both the advertising and uh, reader revenue or subscription market than perhaps we have. But the, look, the, the parts of it that I wish we had have done faster, and I'm sure The Guardian will do post my departure, is what Manor touched on, which is... We've launched state-based reporting recently. We haven't done that in WA, uh, my home state yet. I think there's a big opportunity there. I would have loved to have done that before leaving. Um, uh, and, you know, some of the verticals that we spoke about previously, I guess um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a frustration of the way we have approached things, just building on what I said before. It's a frustration of the way we have approached things is that there's, a, there's, a, there's 10 other verticals that we, I would have loved to have done more than we have had the opportunity to do. But because we have chosen, I think correctly, but because we have chosen to grow, you know, step by step, relatively sustainably, maintain our profits or break even, um, we just haven't gone into them yet. So um, more money would have been great, I guess, is the short answer. <laughs> we should uh, talk about a couple of the other verticals, I suppose we should call it, um, Lenore. Um, sport, important question with the ashes coming up. Um, the Guardian's coverage of the ashes is always iconic. Um, will, will Australian readers get an australian voice covering it or will they will they have to put up with the the english voice in the ball by ball no, coverage? we usually have an australian reporter at the ashes in fact almost always um and we are very keen at all times no matter who's helming the live blog to make sure that it isn't partisan um <laughs> it isn't taking sides um sports an area that i have been thinking a lot about because it's you know it's hard to compete right like it's the Melbourne Mastheads are so strong on AFL, the New South Wales ones, you know, uh, on Rugby League, um, the NRL. We've been thinking about how we do that. I'm about to hire a sports reporter because until now we've just had desk editors and relied on um, international uh, coverage as well of the of the biggest sports. So we, we're slowly expanding in sport, but I think it's a place where we want to do more. Is there a place for a kind of outsider voice on sport because it does feel like if you want to report on the NRL you want to report on the AFL you've got to keep the establishment on side that's precisely what I want I do not want someone who is sort of in the team and you know I don't want that in any areas of our journalism anybody who's sort of beholden to the people they're writing about Um, and so that is the perspective that I want I would argue that we already are distinct in the kinds of people that we commission. I think we sort of our column, our sports columnists uh, have a, you know, a, a very sort of smart take on sports commentary that isn't, you know, there's other smart commentators around, but I think that's distinctive in our sports coverage already. Now, as we look back on the last 10 years, I guess we have to think about some of the kind of the, the defining pieces of journalism. I mean, I, I was thinking about Nauru, Snowden, Robo debt. Um, which, which are the stories you think about? Um, well, we've just been thinking about this a bit in preparing for our tenth birthday. I guess the uh, Snowden story was the first one that made a big splash. That was the uh, leaked documents that showed that Australia had been spying or tapping the phones of President Yudhoyono and his wife and his inner circle. That kind of put us on the map in that it caused an enormous fuss and furor at the time. Tony Abbott was 
upset in a way rightly because because it, it had all happened under the previous government but he bore the consequences um so that was a big story and a consequential story i think the nauru files were very consequential in part because of the way that we approached it so this was this huge dossier of incident reports and it was quite hard to the story was the number of them and the pattern that built up across this range of incident reports you there wasn't one that you could pull up and say, look at this terrible, this one terrible thing here is the lead. And so it was presented in a data journalism way, which was quite unique at the time. And it had an enormous impact, both because of the story, but also because of the way that we reported the story. And I think we've had a bit of a record of doing that with data stories. So um, the deaths inside data piece was like that. So that came about because one of our reporters was looking for how many deaths in custody, Indigenous deaths in custody there had been since the Royal Commission. Uh, It was a recommendation of the Royal Commission that that be tracked, but actually no one was tracking it. No one knew. And so we set about compiling that evidence and it was very hard to get um, from coroner's reports and wherever else. And again, it was presented in a database, which remains an ongoing resource for everyone. And I know you know, the Prime Minister's department rang up and went, how did you get that? You know, they, they didn't have that data. The Killing Times, the, um, which was the massacre map of um, Frontier War ma- Indigenous massacres was another example. So I think we've made a mark in data journalism. We've also made a mark, I think, in persisting with stories we think are important and RoboDebt would be one of those. So I think um, Chris Norse, one of our reporters, sort of first saw that and then another reporter, Luke Enrique Gomes, stuck with it, kept finding people who had had these debts raised against them unfairly, stuck with it through till the end of the Royal Commission. And I think that persistence was very consequential in that story. I mean, there were other reporters reporting on it, but I think our consistent reporting was important. And I think the Royal Commissioner actually made a remark about that during the Royal Commission. That's really cool. And do you think it says something about, I don't know, Australian media culture perhaps, the other outlets weren't following that up more strongly right from the beginning because it felt like it was always a scandal, but it took us years to actually, yeah. for the penny to drop that it was a scandal. Because the government was really pushing the narrative that all they were doing was getting back money that was rightfully theirs and to understand that it was a scandal, and it goes back to what I said before, to get that it was a scandal, you had to talk to the people who were affected by the scandal, not by the people who were perpetrating the scandal. And it was because Luke was talking to those people that he and some other journalists, including some um, some uh, citizen journalists, that that's why they could see the story. Why do you think it wasn't covered everywhere, though? Because it, it seemed objectively... It should have been a big story from the beginning. Was it because it was your story so the others didn't want to follow? I don't think so. I think if you were not in a position to continually talk to people who were affected by it and you were getting the very strong um, PR spin from the government, which most political reporters would have been getting, and you didn't have that counterbalancing information, that's where you end up. Dan, um... As we begin to wrap up, and you begin to to wrap up, um, programmatic revenues are falling, news media bargaining code, renewals not guaranteed, certainly not from Facebook. Um, Should we feel pessimistic or optimistic about the funding of journalism in the future? I am more optimistic now, Tim, about the future of 
journalism and news media than I have been at any stage in the last 20 years of my career. Um, for, I think, three reasons. Um, the first one is, uh, you know, just consumers' willingness to pay for news has really just transformed all of our prospects. You know, the fact that um, about half of our revenue now comes from our readers, and I think that's the case for most news organisations and will continue to grow, I think just means that the business is now sustainable. And whereas, you know, a few years ago, that was a question mark, is whether it was going to be or not. Um, the other part is, I think, from an advertising point of view, what we've done at The Guardian is we've, we've gone away from reliance on programmatic and really third parties selling our, um, our inventory. Now, I guess that makes us unique or, or a little bit different to the rest of uh, the big publishers. But what I, the, the key, I came into here at this organisation at the time, 50% of our advertising revenue was from programmatic, and that was what I thought was going to continue to grow. Um, what I have learned perhaps later than I should have uh, through this process is the audience that news publishers bring, and The Guardian in particular, is so much more valuable than uh, the kind of audience you get on a long tail of sites that Google serves ads to or the engagement you get from people scrolling through a social media feed. And therefore, it just lends itself to a smaller number of aligned advertisers um, really benefiting on that audience affinity with the publisher. And so that's been the strategy that we've gone to. And I think, you know, I think that all publishers will probably come to some kind of realisation on that. Now, to be clear, we're still reliant on programmatic to some extent, but it's a much, it's like less than 10% of our revenue now, whereas previously it was about 50%. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is, sure, I mean, obviously the news media bargaining code debate was a fairly unique uh, occurrence. Um, I think you and I differ on uh, the need for it, Tim, but... Um, I think we agree on the need, but we might disagree on whether it was a shakedown or not. <laughs> yes, that's definitely your term and one that I would never use to describe this. Uh, I would use to describe, uh, I would say, it's, you know, giving fair value for the benefit that the platforms receive from our journalism. I don't... Uh, look, I think that um, the platforms themselves would acknowledge that they are getting a benefit from our journalism they weren't paying for, and that's why they have gone into it. Now, um, some more than others, sure, um, but I think that the... Mechanics of the news media bargaining code um, mean that uh, I hope at least that this will continue into the future. And I think if you have those three things, then the prospects for The Guardian and I think news media more broadly uh, are really strong, really strong. I mean, you know, it's a tough year ahead. It's a tough year ahead for everyone because of the economic outlook, right? But I think we'll get through this and, and there's a really bright future ahead. No, I'll ask you the same question as the final question. If, we, um, if we're sitting around this table in another 10 years' time, are we talking about a good decade? Uh, in terms of news, I hope so. I think I'm also optimistic uh, for the reason that as the news ecosystem is increasingly flooded with not very nice stuff, AI-generated stuff, you know, content farm-generated stuff, clickbait stuff, I think it's easier to make the case and people, readers are understanding the case that um, that a trusted quality news brand is a good place to go for news. I think 10 years ago when we started, you know, we were still in that days of feeling optimistic and excited about the prospects of, of the digital transformation and you know, there was lots of, and, and excited about the fact that there were lots of people, you know, uh, providing news. We could have bloggers, we could have, you know, citizen journalists, and all that is still true. But I think the zone has become so flooded and people have become so overwhelmed that that, uh, I think that will make it the case easier for us to make that 
trusted news brands are the place where you can get your news. Now, we have to distribute it in different ways. We have to, you know, we have to do it in different ways. We have to present information in different ways that readers want. But ultimately, I think we can make the case that they can trust us. And that is the most important thing. Well, congratulations on the first decade. Lenore and Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. Today's episode was edited by the fine folk at Abe's Audio. More soon. Toodle pick. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.